God, as we open your word and uh, try to listen, help us to be attentive, help us to set aside the distractions, any anxieties that are weighing on us right now, that we might hear from you and understand uh, your way, your will, and your word. Uh, I ask and pray that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words should stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So reading now from the Gospel of John, beginning at chapter 20, verse 1. Listen closely. This is the Word of God. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, a not-so-subtle reference by John, the uh, disciple and author of this Gospel to himself. And said, uh, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then these two disciples went back to where they were staying. Fast forward to verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, again, shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, which was a powerful declaration, uh, not of doubt from so-called doubting Thomas, but of faith, but of belief, but of trust. But neither Thomas nor any of Jesus' other disciples, even after spending three years with Jesus, really got to that place of faith, belief, trust quickly or easily because people don't ordinarily rise from the dead. And people who have been beaten and whipped and scourged within an inch of their life and who were then crucified and then left to hang for hours and who were then pierced in the torso with a spear and who then died in front of dozens if not hundreds of witnesses and then only later taken down from the cross and put into a cave after being wrapped in linen toe to head with the cave door shut left there for 48 hours or three days in Jewish thinking, 
those sorts of people don't ordinarily come back to life. And so I appreciate how honest all of the four gospel writers are about Jesus' disciples. I read through each of the four gospels, the latter part that dealt with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus this weekend, and was reminded about how honestly the writers describe Jesus' disciples and about Jesus' resurrection. They were variously described multiple times as afraid, as alarmed, as bewildered, as filled with doubt, unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. And all of Jesus' disciples, of all of them, the gospel writers probably write more about Peter than any of Jesus' other disciples. Peter seemed to be the closest to Jesus. Peter was the disciple upon whom Jesus said that he would build his church. And until the apostle Paul comes along, at least Peter was the key point person or leader in Jerusalem in the broader church movement. And the scriptures paint an interesting picture of Peter. He was impetuous. He was fickle, always changing his mind, uh, blabbing, speaking too quickly, his tongue getting ahead of his mind. He was at times full of courage, but in times other times completely cowardly. You remember just before Jesus' crucifixion, he said to Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter actually ends up doing that. While his beloved friend is being tried and prosecuted and then persecuted, executed eventually, Peter to three different people denies even knowing Jesus. He's that back and forth and that waffly at that place in his life. But then something happened. Something that changed everything because Peter was transformed into a fully devoted, totally courageous person who had gotten on board with the mission of Jesus in such a full and complete way that his life was transformed. Something happened to Peter. And that something could only have been some sort of tangible, palpable, real encounter, not with a corpse, not with a mystery, but with the transformed, risen, resurrected Jesus now alive. Something that day in and around the cave, just outside of Jerusalem, forever changed Peter. And not just Peter, but a a bunch of already disciples of Jesus who had been scared, hiding, backsliding, who had shrunk in the face of adversity, recoiled, pulled back. Something happened to them as well. And this movement of people following Jesus began to grow and grow and grow. That which had all but died out begins to explode until dozens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, and eventually millions of people come to join this movement of people who trust in Jesus. One of those people was a man named Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, who went from a self-described, self-righteous, full of himself, know-it-all, better-than-others, condescending, religious zealot of a man who refused going from that kind of person to a person who refused to boast in anything but the grace of God in Jesus. He formally said, I would, put, I would boast and I could boast of everything there is to boast about because that's who I am. A Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews, righteous among the righteous. 
But he became one who only boasted in the grace of God for him, who went from being the most feared killer of first-generation Christians, who hunted down Christians like animals and had no hesitation in overseeing their deaths and then being stoned to death, to the author of maybe the best-known words about love in the Western world in history, the author of those words in 1 Corinthians, a letter that he wrote, if, if, I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast. And Paul goes on, a fully transformed man after his encounter with the risen and living Jesus. And this is against all odds, again, because people don't easily change. I know from my experience and from watching, living with people around me. People don't easily change, especially in crisis situations, when we revert to our true selves to our comfort zones, to our defense mechanisms, to our true selves. People don't easily change. But something happened to Paul. As Saul, he became Paul. And something happened to most of those other first followers of Jesus. And that something transformed these people to the very core of their beings, turning them from normal, natural people who truly are first concerned about themselves and their own safety and well-being and comfort to people who lived with a different purpose, with a different mission, with a different worldview, whose attention went from themselves to the Lord and to others, and whose mission became that which Jesus lived and that which Jesus taught that true life is found in loving God with all of one's heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving one's neighbors, other people, as one loves oneself against our own survival of the fittest instincts. In the movie Captain America, the first uh, Avenger, the young soldier wannabe Steve Rogers is ridiculed by Colonel Phillips, played by Tommy Lee Jones, as just a 95-pound asthmatic and a boy among men. But when Colonel Phillips throws down among a group of trainee soldiers what everyone thought was a live grenade, all of the other soldiers dive for cover away from the grenade while Steve Rogers, the little 95-pound asthmatic, seemingly instinctively dives forward and toward the grenade that he thought was live and covers it up to save others. He's an example of, despite his size, something instinctively different about this soldier, this person, his character, his heart, his being. Similarly, as people in the days, weeks, months, and years immediately after Jesus' resurrection had encounters with the living Jesus and with his spirit, people not only came to faith in the resurrected Jesus, but they came to trust the resurrected Jesus. And more than that, they allowed their lives to revolve around him, be immersed in him, and be shaped 
by him and so become like him and so like people who would willingly and even eagerly lay down their lives, throw themselves on a grenade for other people. Rodney Stark, a sociology, a sociologist, college professor, author of dozens of books, who has twice won the Distinguished Book Award from the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. He writes about two devastating epidemics that swept through the Roman Empire, the first beginning in the year 165 during the reign of the emperor Marcus Aurelius that medical historians believe was the first appearance of smallpox in the West, which over the course of its 15-year duration, 15-year epidemic, between a quarter and a third of the empire's population, including eventually Marcus Aurelius himself, were killed, died. Some 70 years later, another equally devastating epidemic swept through the empire, which is thought to have been measles, which striking a previously unexposed population can produce also massive mortality rates. All citizens of the empire were not equally affected, however. As Rodney Stark writes, these epidemics swamped the explanatory and comforting capacities of paganism and the Hellenistic or Greek philosophies. In contrast, Stark writes, Christianity offered a much more satisfactory account of why these terrible times had fallen upon humanity and it projected a hopeful, even enthusiastic portrait of the, of the future because of the resurrected Jesus. There's more though. Acknowledging the huge death rate, Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria noted that though this terrified pagans, Christians greeted the epidemic as merely schooling and testing. Thus, at a time when all other faiths were called to question, Christianity offered explanation and comfort. And even more important than that, Christian doctrine, in other words, the teaching and the way of Jesus, provided a prescription for action in the midst of epidemic. At the height of the second great epidemic around the year 260 AD, in his Easter letter to the larger Christian community in Egypt, Dionysus penned a lengthy tribute to the heroic nursing efforts, caring for other people efforts, of local Christians, many of whom lost their lives eventually while caring for others, he wrote in that Easter message. Most of our brothers, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty in their caring, in their nursing, in their care for other people, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred the death of those for whom they cared to themselves and ended up dying in their stead. 
The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendations so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way equal to martyrdom. And Dionysus continued, the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the very onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, their closest family and friends, throwing them into the roads before they were even dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. Collectively, these second and third century Christians, or as people who in some way had witnessed or encountered the living and resurrected Jesus, possessed at least three things or qualities that others in their world did not because they had encountered and experienced the resurrected Jesus in some way, shape, or form. First, they had embraced the revolutionary way of love before ever getting to the crisis. They followed a teacher, a messiah, a rabbi, a savior whose way was all about love, unique in their world at that time. They learned from Jesus' teaching and from Jesus' life about the primacy of love, of self-denying love, of sacrificial love, of love for people who could not and would not pay one back, of love for strangers, for the poor, and even for one's enemies. And they found in this way of Jesus itself and himself life with a capital L, sometimes referred to as eternal life in the scriptures. That was the first thing. Second, they understood that there could be meaning in suffering. They worshiped a Lord and a God who in expressing love had himself experienced and embraced suffering, unlike the pagan gods as God did in taking on flesh and as Jesus did in embracing his cross, dying, suffering, so that others might live. And so if God wasn't afraid of suffering, neither did they have to be. Suffering could have meaning, and for them, suffering did. That's the second thing. And third, and most important, they didn't fear death. Because Jesus was raised from the grave, because Jesus conquered death, because Jesus was raised to new and everlasting life, these early Christians could trust in number one, in his mission of love. And they could trust number two. And in addition, they did not fear death. They didn't have to because in Jesus, they had a firm and certain hope of a life to come, a life after these bodies. Again, because of the resurrection, they possessed these unique qualities. And these three things made all the difference in the world for them and for us, they still may and do. Now, admittedly, all who accept the name Christian, who take that on, who welcome that, who claim that as their own, do not possess these three things. But for those who have genuinely encountered the risen Lord in some way, shape, or form, by faith or through his spirit, who understand his way and who have decided to trust him and his way for life, 
they are at least on the right road. And so experience, and so the experience of Jesus' first disciples and of the second and third century Christians in Alexandria, that experience is available to us, accessible to us, and maybe even for those who want it, inevitable. Which brings me to a man named Maximilian Kolbe. Uh, born in 1894, Kolbe uh, quickly as a young student in high school, uh, grammar school, uh, joins a Franciscan order with his older brother and matriculates through the Roman Catholic schools of his time in Poland, eventually going to Rome to study in seminary where he uh, was ordained a priest, got a PhD, and then another doctorate. He went back to Poland, spent time teaching in seminary, spent time in Asia uh, as a missionary, uh, began to lead a community back in Poland, and then the war started. In 38 and 39, the Nazis, the Germans, moved in. Colby ended up in a concentration camp in Auschwitz. He was eventually transferred to where he continued to minister to people despised by the Nazis because he would not embrace their message. But he ministered to his fellow prisoners as they worked, as they suffered, as they were weakened day after day, week after week, month after month, becoming living skeletons for all intents and purposes. One day in his barracks, barracks 14, uh, someone escaped. Periodically, prisoners would attempt to escape. Anytime a prisoner did attempt to escape and was caught, he was eventually hung as soon as he was brought back to the barracks for all of the prisoners to see as a warning of what, uh, what awaited them if they attempted to escape. But this day... The German soldiers, their dogs, they didn't bring back a prisoner who attempted to escape. That prisoner actually was successful and got away. And what the commander's response was to when that happened was to choose not one man to die, but ten. And so he chose ten men. He lined up the entire group that lived in Barrack 14, had them stand at attention all day, in the heat of the day, in an ordered fashion, and then one by one went by them, picking out ten, one, two, three, giving them essentially a death sentence. He would later take them to what was called the starvation chamber. And one of the men that the commander pulled out of line started screaming and crying and said, my mother, my wife, my children, and so Maximilian Kolbe did what no one ever dared to do. He stepped out of line and spoke to the commander and said, Sir, may I take the place of one of these men? And unexpectedly, because it was out of character for the commander to do anything but strike down such a person who spoke to him without permission or invitation, he accepted Kolbe's offer and let the other man who was crying, go back into the lineup of his own barracks. And Colby took his place with the other ten. They were taken to a barracks where they were deprived of water and food and simply left there to die the most painful and awful death a person could. 
of simply dying of starvation and thirst over however much time it took. And that's the way Colby eventually died, the last of those ten to die. But over the next few days, as those men were dying out, what was the norm? Was crying and wails and screams and howling and pain and angst that could be heard through the camp normally. But this time, every morning, every evening, every midday, there were songs of rejoicing and songs of praise quietly emanating out of that starvation chamber as one by one they went down. There was something in Maximilian Kolbe that was different. He had encountered the risen Lord. He had come to learn the way of love. He realized that there could be meaning in suffering that there had been for the Lord, his Lord, and that there was for him. And he had a firm and certain hope that his death in that starvation chamber and that of the other men that day was not the end, but that there was more. That there was life with a capital L that began then and there in that barrack and that lasted for eternity. Well, fast forward to today in our culture in which the resurrection of Jesus is primarily about Easter lilies and a holiday and a day off from work and a day school. It's the origins and the backstory of a springtime holiday that we call Easter. That is kind of the limits of an experienced reality for most people and even most Christians, maybe. But there's a deeper life into which the resurrected Jesus invites us. It's the way of love. It's the way of understanding that suffering can have meaning. It's the way of giving up oneself for others. It's the way of caring for those who are suffering through an epidemic. And it's a way that's filled with and infused with hope and not fear because we know that this life will be renewed and resurrected in a life that is to come. And Jesus called this present reality into which he invites people the kingdom of God, which was a kingdom not with boundaries and borders, but a reality in which God's rule was observed and God's will was done and God reigned supreme and everything that he intended came about. And it's into this kingdom that he invites all of us today. The resurrection of Jesus is not and the resurrected Jesus is not a shield to keep a person from getting the coronavirus and even dying of that. But rather, it is a new reality which Jesus called God's kingdom with which and in which a person can live and die through this pandemic in a completely different way that Jesus described as his kingdom that not only is coming, but that is already here and that is available and accessible, the world must know. And this kingdom is a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of justice. It's a kingdom of hope. It's a kingdom of peace. It's a community of oneness where people are empowered to experience a life on earth that is completely different 
than one would otherwise live. This kingdom promises this life and into this, Jesus invites us not just when we're on our deathbed, but here and now today. May we be filled with God's spirit and welcome the resurrected Jesus into our lives and so be transformed and so be renewed and experience what he intends for us and all people. And in this, may we find great joy and may God be glorified. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you offer us life that's more than this life, more than just flesh and bones. That you offer to fill us with your spirit and create in us a different kind of life that though it may die, will always forever live. Help us to find our hope in you. May our lives revolve around you. May our strength be found in you. May we look to your resurrection not as a cute children's story, but as the source of life itself in these bodies and in the life to come. Bring this about. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen.